Well, welcome to Guerrilla Disciple Making, Guerrilla Discipleship. It's so good to have you here. My name's Kevin Baker. I get to be your host, and I'm glad that you've joined us again this week. You know, I've been thinking a lot, of course, I do think a lot about disciple making and discipleship, and I've been pastoring for over 30 years, and uh, it is just amazing to me how uh, after all these years in ministry, I, I look around and I think, boy, there's still a lot of confusion around discipleship and disciple-making in churches and with uh, folks in the church. And so I came across an article by discipleship.org. Uh, they're uh, an amazing organization. If you don't know uh, discipleship.org, look them up. They've got great resources. But in, in 2020, um, they shared the top trends in disciple-making that I thought I would just share with you because I think they're so illuminating to just set the pace and the, and the, the setting into which our churches are living in, e even here in 2022. So here are nine things. They basically said here are the nine top trends um, for disciple-making. The first one was this, and, and think about this, especially uh, as we think about churches we've experienced. They said less than 5% of churches in the U.S. are disciple-making churches. Less than 5%. So basically what we have is a, a, a set of churches in our culture that have, for a variety of reasons, moved away from the primary mission that Jesus gave us. Now, these are good people. These are good pastors, good churches. And, and so there's something going on that we need to rethink. There's it's time for a, a bit of an awakening, a revival, a reformation in the churches, if you will, in our culture to begin to get back to the, the primary things, the first things that God gave us to focus on. The second thing is uh, that they say, another trend, is that the USA lacks revival-based disciple-making movements. Now, uh, they call revival-based disciple-making movements what we've been calling obedience-based disciple-making movements. But these are disciple-making movements. We see over a thousand of them across the globe, but they say, discipleship.org says, none of them are located in the U.S. And these disciple-making movements are fast-growing. They become fourth-generation uh, followers of Jesus within a very short amount of time. They're they very much look like the book of Acts in terms of the way the gospel spreads and the way that churches are planted and disciples are made. It's, it's disciples making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And, and then churches are, are planted out of that disciple-making growth. And so there's none of them currently in the U.S., even though there are, as I said, over a thousand by their count, there are over a thousand in the, in the globe. I I think the count is closer to about 1,300, but um, that's, that's amazing. And, and so we've got to ask God to, to help us to see what is happening around the world so that we can see it happen here. Then the third trend that they see is that there's great confusion in disciple making. Here's what they say. I'm going to read it right from there. There is great confusion about the meaning of basic terms like discipleship, disciple, and disciple-making, which means it's very difficult for us to even access effectiveness. They say there is no clear definition of disciple or disciple-making in Protestant churches in the U.S., and I found that to be true as well, that if you ask the average person in the church what the definition of a disciple is, 
that they might say, well, I think that's just someone who follows Jesus, right? And, and so this idea that a Christian and a disciple are the same, but when you get down to what are the traits or the marks of a disciple that would help us understand who is a disciple, at that point, there's lots of confusion, lots of different definitions. And so how can the church unify when we don't have a unified definition of the very mission that Jesus gave us for our lives to spend going into the, all the world and making disciples uh, in all the nations and of all the nations. The fourth one, and I'm sensitive about this fourth uh, trend that they say because I, I, I know how I, I live the life of a pastor, and they say this, pastors overestimate their disciple-making effectiveness. All of us work so hard. Every pastor I know works very hard and we want our churches to be successful. And we are intimately aware of all of the, the struggles and failures, but we also want to highlight the positives and the good things that are happening. And the reality is that we want to believe that, uh, that our kids' choir or our youth group or our Bible studies or sermons or whatever it might be, that they're really making a difference. But when it comes down to it, we too often overestimate the impact we're having in terms of making disciples, getting people in our churches engaged with helping others who they know outside of the church, folks who are far from God, even engaging them in spiritual conversations is often a huge hurdle. We're so used to allowing the professionals to do this. You know, those folks who uh, have gone to seminary, who are called specifically to be pastors or missionaries or evangelists. And we've forgotten that disciple-making is in the hands of everyday, ordinary disciples who make up the church. And so we, we've overestimated it partially because it's, uh, it's disheartening and we want to believe that there's more going on. Number five, they say there's a need for American senior pastors to make what they call the disciple-making shift. We need to shift, they say, to a Jesus-style disciple-making as the core mission of every part of our ministries in our churches. We have some, I, I know a, a wonderful pastor who is on staff at a church and his heart is disciple-making. And yet his senior pastor, who's not opposed to disciple-making, is so often trying to continue to grow the church and build the church. And after all, we pastors have a lot of pressure on us to keep the bills paid, to see numbers of, of people coming to our church. But disciple-making, as I said, really effective disciple-making happens away from us. It doesn't grow toward us. It happens away from us. Jesus sent us out. And as we make disciples, we send them out. So disciple-making by nature is a growth away from us into the world where people are far from God and God wants them to hear the message of and have a witness of the truth of what it means to follow Jesus. And so uh, we pastors are often struggling, and so we need senior pastors who are willing to take the risk, stand up, and be bold about the reality that we are not going to care as much about butts in our seats and bills in our budgets as we are about kingdom work. We can't keep building our brand, and our hope always is by building our brand that we're building the kingdom. But the more we focus on building our brand, the less we focus on building God's kingdom. The more we focus on building God's kingdom, we get to see what God will do with our brand. I hope that makes sense. God is inviting us to trust him. 
It's what we go through in our own individual lives, right? We we think, well, I'll get to doing some ministry after I get all my bills paid and, and all of the tasks, and we never get to it. And so what Jesus did when he first sent out those first disciples is he, take, he said, take nothing with you. He wanted us to see that God won't send us on his mission and not provide for our needs. And I think we as church people, churches themselves, we're going to have to get to the place where we understand that if we stay focused on the mission that God has given us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Jesus taught us. Jesus started that by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he finished it by saying, I will never forsake you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. The mission is sandwiched between God's promises that he owns all the cattle on a thousand mountains and his promise to never leave our side. We've got to trust that he'll provide for the budget. We've got to trust that he'll provide for our family's needs and our personal needs as we faithfully and obediently serve him in the mission that he's given all of us. It's a hard task. It's a really hard task for churches and senior pastors. The sixth thing is that fasting and prayer are essential for effective disciple making. I was just having a conversation with one of our staff members before uh, uh, coming to talk with you, and and uh, we both admitted that we love to pray and we believe in fasting, but that doesn't mean that we practice it. And yet we we know that God has commanded us to fast and pray. We know that the fasting and praying is often what precedes great movements of God. And yet so often in the church, we're unwilling to do the sacrificial work of fasting and praying. It's If we want to see a, a whatever you want to call it, revival-based uh, movement of disciple-making, uh, an obedience-based movement of uh, disciple-making, if we want to see the church come alive, if we want to see the church begin to have an uh, impact in our culture, if we want to see numbers of our family members and friends who are far from God and struggling with hopelessness and addictions and, and emotional issues, if we want to see their lives enhanced, then we've got to be willing to say, God, only you can do this work. Only the Spirit of God can bring about revival. And so we've got to commit ourselves to fasting and praying. Here at Oakdale Church, we're facing huge decisions and I think we need to fast and pray. The board is going to begin to lead some times of prayer for all of us, and, and I'm, I'm encouraged on that, but we haven't talked about fasting and praying. I wonder how many of us would join together in that, but we've got to begin to see that God is inviting us to, pour, to, to answer or to test him in his promise that he will pour out all of the blessings upon us when we trust him enough to fast and pray. And then finally, what, uh, no, not finally, sorry, number seven, what they say is pastors and leaders have to develop simple and reproducing disciple-making models. We've made discipleship and disciple-making very complicated. That's why we use something called the Discovery Bible Study Method. It's very simplistic. In fact, so simple that most church uh, people who've been in church for a long time think, oh my goodness, there's, there's no, nothing to this. It's basically reading the, the, a text of scripture and asking seven questions that anyone can ask. In fact, what we're trying to get people to do is to see that if you can easily train anyone 
to do the kind of disciple making through using this discovery Bible study method. And it, it allows people to discover for themselves the power and truth of God's word. It's amazing. And yet we in the church are so used to very complicated, sophisticated, oh, oh, you've got to be at seminary before you can really be effective at that. We, we've forgotten that the one of the criticisms of the early disciples, of the first disciples by the religious elite was, oh, my goodness, they're just ordinary, unschooled men. Can I tell you, God loves to use ordinary, unschooled people to accomplish the work of the kingdom. I think there's several reasons for that. First of all, God says that his power is made perfect in our weakness. We keep wanting God's power to empower us in our strengths. But when we use our strengths and live out of our strengths, we often are the ones that are recognized and glorified. And God wants to show the world his love for us that even in our weaknesses, we can be strong. It helps us, I think, also not to try and be so perfect all the time. If we know that God can use our weaknesses, then we don't have to kill ourselves trying to be perfect or trying to be right or trying to be strong. We can be human. We can be our, our father's children. And we can know that even in the places where we're struggling and weak, our father will use us. Our father will bless us and he will build his kingdom regardless of how weak we are. In fact, the Apostle Paul said he boasted all the more in his weaknesses because he knew that in that moment, the strength of God, the power of God was going to be even more amply supplied. Let's begin to get back into that thinking for ourselves. Let's stop assuming that God can only use the hyper-gifted and the hyper-intellectuals, and let's remember that God's going to use people just like us, ordinary, unschooled people that are going to be used by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God to change the world. Number, number eight, he said, they say there's an increasing emphasis on Jesus's kingship and obedience-based disciple-making. In other words, there is a change happening. One of the trends is that the church is realizing that we need to recognize that we have had a forgiveness gospel, but we've missed the kingdom gospel. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We, we do a good job in the church today in the U.S. talking about the need for forgiveness and that Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. That is powerful and truthful, but it's not the whole gospel. The gospel that Jesus preached most of the time that he introduced all of us to was a gospel centered in the reign of God, in the kingdom of God here on earth. Jesus, everywhere he went, preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We've forgotten that, that there's more to life and more to the good news of Jesus than just that I get to be forgiven. God's invited me into the abundant life of what it means, even in this world, even right now, to live as a child of God, empowered by his spirit, in the assurance of his love, knowing that my eternity is secure. You and I, we can't just walk around as followers of Jesus and say, well, I've at least been forgiven. That's that's miserable. That's not all that God has for us. God doesn't want to just, he forgave us in order to reconcile us into the life of abundance and kingdom living that Jesus showed us so that we would live in the joyous feast of the banquet that God has been preparing all along for the people who love him. 
You and I are invited into that even now. We don't have to wait until uh, the moment of our passing or the moment of Jesus's return. And so we need to continue to grow the kingdom gospel, that God's kingdom is here on earth and it's expanding. And we want that kingdom to grow in us and through us. Number nine, they say disciple-making culture is a big issue. Uh, Peter Drucker, I think, said culture eats strategy for breakfast. The reality is that we have to change church culture. Now, can I tell you something? I've been pastoring for 30, over 30 years, and I have been a proponent of and, and actually, I think, gifted for changing church culture. But I can tell you this. Rick Warren, years ago, when he started Saddleback Church, he said, you, you better not try to change your church or it'll, it'll kill you. Others have written books about trying to change church culture. It's not easy. Try to change the culture of your even your own family is not easy. Sometimes as we have had grown up in, in, in uh, maybe a, a less than healthy culture, and we begin to allow God to use his power to transform us, and we begin a new culture in our families. Family systems are powerful. Church systems are powerful. And we can't just take good new strategy and introduce them into already unhealthy, unbiblical, non-focused on the mission of God culture and expect that things are going to happen. We have to actually reorient the culture of the church. That happens by boldness. That happens as we all find our voice together around what God's strategy for the church really is, what God's vision and gifting of the church really is. And it means that we need to be in this together. We need to be uncomfortable. We need to be willing to ask ourselves, what is it about this church culture that's helping us to stay focused on the mission of making disciples? And what about our church culture isn't? And how can we begin to ask God to help our culture change? It's a big topic. In fact, I may have a couple of guerrilla disciple-making uh, discipleship uh, podcasts just on changing culture because it's a huge issue. But finally, the last trend that discipleship.org sees in, uh, in all of this is that we need to build infrastructures and tools and partnerships to do this work. We No one church, no one leader, no one organization probably will be able to see the kind of, of obedience-based, revival-based, uh, disciple-making movement in, in the U.S. that we all want to see. We've got to partner together, which means we need to remember that we're one in Christ, one baptism, one faith, one father of us all. We've got to begin to get away from those secondary issues that divide us, you know, thoughts about particular issues in the church, our view of baptism, our, our view of, of the Lord's Supper. Those are important issues, but could we agree to disagree on some of that? Could we agree that disciples sometimes do infant baptism and sometimes just do adult baptism? Is that possible? Or do we have to keep divided until we get even those issues right? The mentor that I had in ministry who really discipled me basically had this saying that he passed on. And I witnessed this in the way that he lived his life in ministry. He said, Jesus is Lord. His word is true. And if 
you hold those things, we can hold hands with you. Jesus is Lord, his word is true, and if you hold those two things, we can hold hands with you. That's, that's our, we can disagree on lots of things. Church governance, we can disagree on all sorts of, of issues and still understand that we have a mission of making disciples who are going to be led by the Holy Spirit. Let's let the Spirit of God have some freedom in our midst and some freedom in our thinking. I know some of you are thinking, oh, that's just sloppy. And, and I, listen, if we can go back and remember that Jesus is Lord, he is the Lord of the church. He's the King of kings, Lord of lords. And his word, what is his word? Well, my understanding of that is that all 66 books of, of the Bible, the canon of the scripture is true. It's not always easy to understand, and it's it needs to be uh, studied under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the community of God's people. I, I understand that, but we, we can't become extra biblical in our thinking. We can't be unbiblical in our thinking. But there are places in the scripture that gives us so much freedom. We, it's about time the church found her freedom again. We are living too constrained. The people of Jesus, the people, the followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus have more freedom than anyone else in the world. And yet that's the way, that's the opposite of the way most people see it. Most people in the culture today think that we are the less free, the least free. Oh, the freedom in Christ, the freedom of being who you are and knowing you're loved and accepted and secure in a relationship with God, that you don't have to be perfect, that you and I can fail repeatedly, but the grace of God is our covering and the power of God is our strength. There is freedom, freedom to now do what I've always wanted to do, but I didn't have the power to do it because I kept getting waylaid by sin. There is greater freedom in following Jesus. Freedom to love deeply the way God loves, the way Jesus loved. Freedom to love our enemies. We're empowered now to not let our enemies ruin our lives. Their catcalling and persecution doesn't tear us down. We actually can return love even when we are unloved. We have so much more freedom. Well, these top trends in disciple-making uh, and discipleship that discipleship.org posted are a reminder to us that we have a lot of work to do. That's why we started this podcast. That's why we want partnership with you. And if you'll join hands with us around this simple thing that Jesus is Lord and his word is true, let's begin to build the kingdom of God in the power of God here on earth. Let's begin to see our churches transformed, our lives transformed, our families transform. Let's begin to develop partnerships that would see the county and state in which we live saturated with the love of Jesus and the disciples of Jesus, bringing forth the beauty of God's kingdom. I so appreciate you being with us today. Look forward to seeing you again next week.